I want to let the uh, children be dismissed at this time to uh, go to junior church. <clears throat> and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, and then we're going to flip ahead to 1 Peter chapter 4 in a few minutes. Hebrews chapter 10 and uh, verses 24 and 25. The Word of God says this. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and do this all the more as you see the day approaching. Do this all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. Two weeks ago, we began a series on relationships called Contending Together. And the verse that has kind of captured my attention from Philippians chapter 1 is where Paul says to the church in Philippi, he says, I want to hear that you are standing firm together, contending as one man. And Paul says, that's what I want to hear. As you stand for the gospel of Christ and you experience the opposition that is present in the world, I want to hear one thing. That you, the church of Christ in Philippi, and here we think of the church of Christ in Warren County, Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm, contending as one man for the gospel. Folks, one of the things that I think is abundantly clear in the New Testament is that Christian living is not a solo project. It's not an individual's life. It is a corporate experience that God calls us into. And he wants us to live this life together. The question that comes to mind as we go through a topic like this is, should relationships be a priority for every Christian? Okay, should they be a priority in the life of every Christian? That is our brother-sister relationships in the body of Christ. Should they be something that we build our lives around? Should they be central? Should we plan our calendar around our relationships, not only with God, but also with one another? I think the answer to that question from the Word of God is abundantly clear. And I, I just want to give you two simple thoughts about asking the question, are relationships central to biblical truth? I turn your attention first to John chapter 17. In the context of the Trinity, what do you have? You have relationship. Jesus says to his father, I want them, my disciples, to experience the same kind of joy and interaction that you and I experienced in eternity. God is relational and we are called his body. Therefore, I think there is a clear connection that we are to be relational. God created us for this. Go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God creates man in the garden and Adam is alone. God's assessment, the first thing that he identifies in creation that is at some level incomplete or inadequate, is that man was alone, that he was isolated. He wasn't created for that purpose. He was created to be relational, to enjoy life in the context of community. Folks, life is better. We are stronger when we live our Christian life together. God is relational, man is created in the image of God, and is therefore, in essence, relational. If I live in, in isolation, my life is incomplete. God wants us to be passionate about relationships. And I believe that the Bible underscores over and over and over again the centrality of relationships in the context of church life. I believe that relationships are vital to our spiritual health. Individually, I cannot be complete. In my Christian walk, 
I need the help. I need the benefit. I need the blessing. The God designed and God intended benefit of brothers and sisters in Christ in my life. It is vital to the spiritual health of the church. It is therefore the church's true life by God's design. So my proposition this morning is this. We, and I include myself in this, we need close, vital relationships. Okay, that's the the point I want to go after this morning. Okay, and I want to do it from two passages of Scripture. Now, here's the question that comes to mind. If we make the assertion that relationships are a vital part of the Christian experience, and if we can say we need them, they are essential, like blood in the human body, like oxygen in our lungs, they are essential to true life. The question that comes to my mind is, why? Okay, why are relationships a vital part of the Christian life? Okay, and I'm going to give you two answers this morning. One is based upon the nature of the Christian life as it is expressed in the New Testament, the nature of the Christian life. And then secondly, the God-given purpose of relationships. Okay, so relationships are essential because they are essential to the nature of the Christian life and because they have a God-intended, God-given, God-designed purpose in our daily experience. So let's look at the first one. The nature of the Christian life as a reason for pursuing vital relationships. There are two words that we can use to describe the experience of everyone who is born born again by grace through faith in the work of the Spirit of God. One word is this. It is salvation. Salvation means to be rescued from the consequence of my sin that I so rightly deserve. Salvation is the completed work of God whereby he declares our sins forgiven and the righteousness of Christ applied to our life. And our status before him is different. We are seen as righteous. Okay, that is our position before God. It is purely the result of the new work. It is all of God and I make no contribution to my salvation. Okay, all I do is in response to the prompting of the Spirit of God, convicting me is to respond to God in faith saying, I need a Savior. I trust in the shed blood of Christ as the only means of my salvation and forgiveness. What happens is all of God. I don't make any contribution to the change of my eternal destiny. It is a legal act of God who declares us forgiven. And that should be a cause for us of great rejoicing. It is what brings us into the body of God. Of Christ. If you're here this morning, this is where God, and you don't know Christ, this is where God desires to meet you today. He wants to meet you at the cross, stripped of all of your performance, stripped of all of your religious uh, education and information. He wants to put all of that aside, all your efforts. He wants you to leave them and come to the cross of Christ alone and let God do a work in your heart this morning. Salvation is the completed work to which I make no contribution, and yet my eternal destiny is forever changed. Hell is avoided, and heaven is gained. Second word that describes the nature of the Christian life. So one aspect, it's a completed work of God, but then there's another word we use to describe Christian experience, and is this. It is the word sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, here's the way the Apostle Paul says it. He says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Okay, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. 
Okay, this word refers to the ongoing work of God and men. Okay, when I say men, I mean generically men and women. Okay, sanctification is the ongoing work of God and men. It is the means by which God is shaping us by the work of his spirit into the likeness of his glorious son, our savior, Jesus Christ. It is the progressive work of God as opposed to the completed work. It is ongoing. We make a contribution to this work. We put our effort into seeking after God. It is the work of God by which he makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like his son. Now, let's see if this observation then makes sense. Salvation, the completed work of God. Sanctification, the ongoing work of God. Every Christian has the same degree of salvation. Does that make sense? Every Christian is equally forgiven and saved. But we have varying degrees of sanctification or conformity to the image and likeness of Jesus. Okay? So my salvation is completed by God. My sanctification is the ongoing work of God. And it will not be complete until the day that I stand before him. That's why the Apostle Paul and the passage that Carmelo read for us this morning. Paul saying, I press on. Not that I have already become perfect, but I, I'm pressing on. I am pursuing conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the ongoing work of God. And that ongoing work can be defined in two ways in these words I have in your notes. It is a cooperative effort that is in each individual striving with God, working with God, cooperating with God to become more and more like Jesus. So Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is the one who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So God is the one, as we say, yes, Lord, I want to become more like you. He joins us in this cooperative effort. Okay, so one aspect of this work of sanctification, it is a, it's a team effort. It's you and God together working towards this goal. Okay, but here's a, here's a truth that I think we often miss. Our progress towards the likeness of Christ is also a community effort. Okay, when I say community, I mean Christian community. Our conformity to Jesus is supposed to be worked out by the power of God and in the context of the body of Christ. We are to be watching over each other and helping each other towards the goal of becoming more and more like Jesus. And I think this is where Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 inform us about the nature of relationships. The writer says, and let us consider... That is to look upon one another's lives so that we may know how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Okay, that's a powerful statement. Let us consider, let us study one another's lives so that we may know how to provoke and encourage and help to direct each other towards love and good works. That is a fascinating picture of the Christian experience. What it tells us is this, our progress towards becoming more and more like Jesus is to be worked out in the context of brother and sister relationships in the body of Christ. What that means is this. If I don't pursue and cultivate relational context in the body of Christ, in some way my spiritual life will be hindered. 
And if I pursue input from brothers and sisters in Christ, my spiritual life will be encouraged. Okay? There is a danger in isolation is what this text is saying. Because we need to be helping each other to see more clearly the work that God is seeking to accomplish in one another's lives. We are to take an active role in each other's lives. Small groups then, or life groups, whatever you want to call them, relational context in your life where you talk about the things of God, contribute to this ongoing work. It moves us towards a greater testimony for the glory of God when we do it together. Folks, I think God's wisdom in this is so profound. Because if we could do it alone, what would our natural tendency be? It'd be to do it alone, and if we do it alone, who gets the credit? We would. Okay, that's the the glory is that we say, God, I couldn't take this step forward in my walk with you apart from your help. And I could not be effective in this walk apart from my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the attitude that it cultivates is a humble dependence on each other. The nature of the Christian life is that it is a cooperative effort with God and a community effort with each other. I'd like you then to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Why small groups? Well, the nature of the Christian life says the Christian living in growth and effectiveness is a community effort. The second thought is this, that there is a God-given purpose for relationships. All right, there is a God-given purpose. I'm, I'm going to identify four of them. There are many others that we could identify, even from the text that we'll be looking at. <clears throat> Let's begin reading in verse 7. And, and I, I, I hope you see the first sentence at the beginning of verse 7 sounds an awful lot like what's at the end of Hebrews 10.25. The end of all things is near. Okay? That is the starting point that launches into discussion about the nature and importance of relationships in the body of Christ. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Does that sound familiar? Okay, you should be thinking of the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of the crucifixion. The author of this text, from a human perspective, is the one who heard those words from the lips of the Savior and did not heed them. And the result was a colossal failure on his part. Peter remembers those words and he says to every one of us as Christians, the end of all things is near. We are in the final phase of God's work prior to the coming of his kingdom. Guard your heart. And the assumption that that, that leads into the discussion about relationships that are helpful with one another, the assumption is that we are watching in prayer, that we are expressing our dependence on God as we talked about in our adult Sunday school class this morning. We are practicing dependence so that as we depend on the spirit of God, we become instruments of encouragement to each other in this community effort of becoming more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. The God-given purpose for relationships then begins to unfold in this text. The first one, and just reflect back on Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the first one is to encourage each other's progress. Means take responsibility for one another's growth in the context of Christian community. Growth occurs... Progress takes place in the context of community and not in isolation. Here's the danger of isolation, of living independently in Christ. 
The danger is I will not see my blind spots. Okay, I will have areas in my life that never get addressed because I'm living in isolation. Let me just illustrate this in one way. If you have opportunity to be around a husband who genuinely and affectionately loves his wife, and you're struggling with that in your own experience, for whatever reason, the things that come up in our lives, you spend time with a brother in Christ who passionately and affectionately loves his wife. You know what happens? Here's what happens to me. I watch that. I observe that in the context of relationships where you're seeing lives live together. You know what happens in my heart? I don't know about you, but I start getting convicted. Am I loving my wife like I should? You watch a parent interact with their child and you see a firmness that is gentle, not rude and rough. Whenever I, wa- whenever I watch that, while well, we were in the process when our kids, especially when they were younger, in the, the corrective discipline stage, to me it was always a challenge. Like, do my kids have that kind of a parent? In the context of relationships, watching each other interacting in life. You see, when I live in isolation, I don't have the example and model of brothers and sisters in Christ around me that I can learn from. Folks, just by being together, there is a natural accountability that begins to occur. God wants us to watch over each other's lives, Hebrews 10. He wants us to take responsibility for encouraging progress in each other. So ask yourself this question. Whose progress in Christ am I responsible for encouraging? Whose progress in Christ am I encouraging? Whose life am I watching over? I recently had a friend in our church family come to me and ask me a question. Purpose of the question was very protective. They were watching out for me in a certain situation in my life. Uh, thankful for people like that. Who can ask questions that provoke you to love and good works and protect. They act as guardrails or fences in your life that keep you from falling off a cliff. Do you, who, in whose life are you that? That guardrail, that protective barrier that helps them to continue to experience progress towards the likeness of Jesus. See, folks, all of us should have this in our lives. God-given purpose for relationships to watch over and encourage each other's progress. And you know what that takes? That takes a selfless life. It takes a life that doesn't think that it's all about my happiness and my desires and my goals. No, it sees the Christian life as a community effort where we reach out to and encourage and help each other. Second purpose that comes out now in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8. Peter says this. He says, above all, love each other deeply. I think the King James says, deeply from the heart. Because love covers a multitude of sin. A purpose for relationships is to provide care. You might want to add in there the word mutual care to each other. It's to watch over each other's lives. It's to take an active role in each other's lives. Folks, can, can I just ask you to think about this? Is that part of your Christian experience? Where you take an active role in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ around you? You take personal responsibility for their well-being? That's what God desires for us. That we would care for each other. And I want you to notice how, he, how, how Peter prioritizes this. He says, above all. Before anything else, 
love each other deeply. Which points to the priority of love. That it is essential. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that Jesus can say, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, you fulfill all the commands of God. When you are sacrificially committed to the encouragement and care and protection of your brothers and sisters, everything else is going to come into line. Care for each other. Love deeply. This word literally means to love constantly in a devoted, patient and durable way. And then he makes the observation because love covers a multitude of sin. Love will enable you to put up with weaknesses in each other. Love will enable you to experience failure on the part of a brother or sister in Christ towards you and still be able to reach out and love them. Folks, isn't that what marital love does? You know, in marital love, you, can't, you don't have the option of walking away if you take a Christian perspective. If your mate fails or gets angry or blows up or whatever it is, you have a commitment and that love restrains and controls and protects the relationship and by the grace of God will make it stronger. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. Take responsibility to care for each other. The Christian life is to be lived in a community of loving, mutual care. Let me just read for you 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. Paul says this about the body is a community of mutual care. He says, so there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. That means someone has your back, you have someone else's back, and when that's the case, everyone in the context of those relationships is protected. Your physical body responds in that way to injury. You can have a very small injury that is somewhat uh, deep and strong, your whole body will shut down. You ever, if you've ever had the experience of doing something to a fingertip, you find that your whole body reacts, begins to shut down and focus on meeting that need. Folks, that's exactly how God wants things to work in the body of Christ. He wants us to live in a context of mutual caring community. Here's the way he says it in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one part suffers, Every part suffers with it if one part is honored. Every part rejoices with it. So that we grieve together and we celebrate together. It's a community of mutual care and concern. I believe that can only happen in the context of personal relationships. Think of the pattern of Christ with his disciples. He sent them out two by two. Paul had Timothy but it's interesting, we always say that, but have you ever read the end of 1 Corinthians 16? You ever read the end of Colossians? Paul had Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and, and Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, you can go, Paul, and it, Paul surrounded himself with a community of mutual care and concern. He, what you, I'm pressing on I, towards the goal. Are you doing that alone, Paul? Oh, absolutely not. And I think Paul said, where would you ever get the notion that Christian living, the body of Christ, is to be done individually? It's a corporate community ex experience. David had his Jonathan. Daniel had three friends. We often, we also always talk about Daniel in the lion's den. Did Daniel do those things alone? No, he, he surrounded himself with three brothers who were strong. Ruth had a Naomi. Esther had a Mordecai. You just go through it, this mutual care, provoking each other to love and good works. Because God doesn't intend for us to live this life in isolation. He doesn't want us to do it alone. And let me just draw this to an application. I think 
and I believe with all my heart, that Sunday morning gatherings are overrated by most Christians. Okay? I believe that Sunday morning gatherings are overrated by most Christians. Say, Tim, how do you know that or why do you believe that? Because I watch the patterns of most Christians. And for many, Sunday morning tends to be the only time they encounter the body of Christ. I want to tell you something. You, you can't watch over each other's lives in one hour on Sunday morning. There is a purpose for this corporate worship proclamation of God's truth so that we can be challenged to love and good works. But where is that going to happen? Do you see? And so what we need to do is to cultivate in our lives, in our personal lives, a context in which this mutual care and concern can actually occur. And I, I just, I'll just, the, the, the plain conviction of my heart is that it requires more than a one-hour commitment on Sunday morning to be a vital part of the body of Christ. God expects more. And folks, let me, let me say this as a qualifier because obviously we're, we're trying to work on an emphasis on raising up life groups, care groups, small groups within our church family. You, you may have this going on in your life in an unofficial way, meaning in a way that's not officially recognized by the church. And that's awesome. And if you have that in your life, you don't need to jump into other, other things. But I'm convinced that the church in America doesn't get this importance of vital relationships. And so there's this need to set up context in which this kind of living can occur. Where we can genuinely care for each other. And experience loving, protective counsel from each other. I think Galatians 6.1 captures this it says brothers if a man is overtaken in a fall you that are spiritual restore such a one guard each other galatians 6 2 bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ let me let me just test this verse bear one another's burdens this morning do you have a burden that no one else knows about do you have a weighty, heavy concern that no one else knows about? Okay, because if you do, you're not living the Christian life as God intended it to be lived. He wants to share each other's burdens. He doesn't want us to go it alone, and you don't have to. And the only way that we can bear each other's burdens is if we spend enough time with each other to gain confidence in each other so that we can begin to share with each other and begin to roll those burdens and share them together for the glory of God. Relationships provide a context for mutual care. And they make a growing church smaller. Here's an observation I've made. I've never had anybody who's involved in small group studies or Sunday school classes who thinks that their church is unfriendly. Fascinating, isn't it? Nobody who engages in those settings, in those contexts, thinks that their church is unfriendly. Why? It, folks, look, it's hard to relate to 180 people personally, okay? So that's what I'm saying. The Sunday morning thing is different than the smaller group setting. And so you ought to plan them into your life. On a regular basis. Why? Because I need that mutual care. God didn't intend for me to do this living alone. He wants us to enjoy that. The mutual benefit. Of life shared together. Another purpose that comes out in verse 9. Notice how Peter says this. 
He says, offer hospitality. You know, this is just a list. Love each other. Offer hospitality to each other without complaining. Now, the word I'm going to use here is the word fellowship with each other. Okay? The, the purpose of opening our homes and engaging in life together is for the purpose of fellowship. What is fellowship as it is strictly defined? It is this. It is sharing things that we hold in common. Okay? So, I love woodworking. I have some friends that I talk to about woodworking. Okay? You may love cars. And guess what? When you're with people that like cars, you begin to experience fellowship. Okay? If you like cooking and you get engaged with someone who likes cooking. And then there are people that actually like teams like the Giants that like to talk about that. Okay? <laughs> Harder to understand, but, you know. Of course, if you're an Eagles fan, you're, you're feeling, like, psychologically disturbed this year. Um, that's, that's fellowship. It's like, hey, Corey likes airplanes. I like talking to Corey about airplanes. So we fellowship over that. Can I, let, me, let me make something clear, okay? When we get together and we talk about all those things, do not think that you are experiencing Christian fellowship, okay? Don't let small talk substitute for what God means when he talks about fellowshipping with each other. He has something greater, something uh, more encouraging, than talking about the things that we love. He has what Carmelo talked about this morning, th that I would boast in nothing like I boast in the cross of Christ. Okay, we have something glorious to share with each other. And, what, and, and this, this takes work. Uh, we need to share our joy in and our relationship and our walk with God with one another. That's biblical fellowship. It's talking about striving and fighting against sin, and seeking to love our wives, and wives seeking to love their husbands, and parents talking with each other about how to raise their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what fellowship is. How is God impacting those things in your life? It's, it's when we intentionally say, okay, enough of the small talk. Let's get down to the, you know, to, to the bones, and to the sinew, and to the muscles, and to the flesh of what it means to be in Christ. Let's talk about that. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, it is not a luxury. It is not an optional addition. And the church will only flourish and Christians be strong when it enjoys true fellowship. Folks, that's a powerful observation from a very mature man in Christ. The church will only flourish when there is true fellowship. And so let's provoke each other. Let's pray that God would give us an ability to share our experience in Christ together for his glory. I make this observation. I don't think that that is practical in large meetings like this. I believe these meetings have their, have their purpose. But when I go to Acts chapter 2, I find that there's preaching to such a large crowd that 3,000 people are converted in one day. When I get to the end of Acts chapter 2, you know what I find? I find believers gathering every day for the breaking of bread, prayer, fellowship, worship, life together. Mutual care and fellowship in the context of hospitality. The world's model focuses in hospitality on entertainment. It seeks to impress. It puts things before people and is easily embarrassed. The biblical model for fellowship is hospitality. It acknowledges this home is not mine. It is a gift that God gave me to use. It is not used to impress, but to, to serve. And it puts away 
pride and does not care if others see our humanness. Folks, if you wait till your house is perfect to have people over till it's ready, you never will. And what have we done? We have put the focus on entertaining people, the world's model, as opposed to biblical hospitality. Which says, you know what? It, uh, there is something that matters more than whether you're impressed with how clean my house is. I shared with you guys an illustration a couple months ago that I really got hammered on about piles of stuff in the house. Okay? I've had a change of heart. Okay? Think about this. If when people come in my house, I'm concerned about what they think about me, I am not serving them. I'm focused on entertaining them and impressing them. And I can tell you this, I like working with wood, I like doing stuff in my house, I like impressing people. My flesh loves that. But it, it is not what God intended. And the reason we fail to practice fellowship and hospitality is we're all caught up. Well, I got to get my life together first. You can't. You're trying to do it alone. God doesn't want you to do it alone. He wants you to engage in fellowship with all of your problems. He wants you to experience progress together for his glory. And may God capture our hearts with this thought that will kill the selfishness of wanting people to see us in a certain way so we can't have them over until everything is just so. That being the case, we will never have them over. Fellowship biblically defined, means sharing our lives together and serving each other. And then just this next thought in the text, and you're going to sense a flow here. Each one should use, okay, now we enter into the area of spiritual gifts. Each one should use whatever gift he has received, which the word here is charis, goes back to the word charismata, we get our word charismatic from it, 1 Corinthians 12. Everyone should use whatever gifting of the spirit they have to encourage each other and to build each other up. Notice how he says it in the text. Each should use whatever gift he has received, whatever capacity, talent, ability you have, use it to serve each other. And when you do, you are faithfully administering God's sustaining, strengthening grace in its various forms. And it is beautiful. This word is beautiful. It's when you look at a garden of well-arranged Flowers that have a variety of colors that just, they work together. They look beautiful together. In isolation, they wouldn't be as beautiful. But when you look at that full spread, it is a lovely thing to behold. And when the church begins to serve each other in the context of vital relationships, it, is, it becomes an expression of the manifold grace of God. And here's what I believe. A watching world is waiting to see that miracle people that live together in spite of their weaknesses and faults, people who fellowship together, who give mutual care to each other. Folks, do you realize that that is what captured the heart of Rome and finally turned away the persecution that was pressed against the church? The unique love that they sustained in community and shared with the external community. That's what made a difference. And so Peter says here, he says, take your gifts and Serve each other with him, faithfully administering God's grace, God's given capacities for serving each other. Folks, what that means is this. One day I will give an account to God for the use of my gifts. Did I use them to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? Fourth purpose for relationships, according to this text, I believe, is to keep serving each other in the power of the Spirit using gifts that are sovereignly 
distributed by God according to a plan that he has and that he wants us to be part of. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says they are given for the common good. The goal of our gifting, I think Peter could not be clearer, so that each one will serve and build up others. What that means is this. It means that I am to give mutual care in the power of the Spirit and I am to receive mutual care in the power of the Spirit. Folks, if God has gifted each of us with capacities to encourage each other, every believer, then that means that every believer has a responsibility to help others and to receive help from others. Does that make sense? It just becomes, if we're all to be serving, the question is who? And I think the text is very clear that our service should be devoted to each other so that we can grow for a purpose that I think is profoundly borne out in verse 11. Just listen to what this says. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What's exciting Peter in that case? Why this doxology? Why this statement of praise? High praise? What is he envisioning? He's envisioning the church living together. Serving each other together in the strength that God provides. So that when it's all said and done, we just go like this. We say it's all due to his grace. It is due to his mercy. It is due to the gifts that he gave to sustain and strengthen and encourage one another. The end goal of relationships is the glory of God. And I, I, what I want to kind of put the accent point on in conclusion is this. It is that in verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is near. And then he launches into this discussion about relationships. And in verse 12, he picks up the theme again. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as if something strange foreign were happening to you. And they go back to Hebrews chapter 12, provoke each other and encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Why does the writer of Hebrews say that? And why does Peter make that the emphasis here at the end? The end of all things is at hand. Thought that ran through my mind is that phrase from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Right? In light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, the fellowship, the group that was working together for the cause became vital. Stick together. And when there were people that became traitors, it was heartbreaking and it hurt the team. But those that stayed faithful experienced a glorious victory. And so it is in the kingdom of God. God wants us to enjoy relationships because he designed us to work in that way. And because our relationships have God-given purposes, and when we embrace them, He will be glorified in His church. And folks, let's just, let's just be honest. When God is being glorified, we as His children experience a heightened joy. When we're encouraging each other, helping each other, loving each other, forgiving each other, serving each other, and God is being glorified in that context, there is a joy that comes to the Christian experience that is unparalleled. It's not an emotional high. It is a sustained, deep foundation. And it is owing to the grace of God. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, the first part's for you. Salvation is the completed work of God that is offered to you through Jesus Christ. All you need to do is to come and say, God, I believe. I believe that I am a sinner. I believe I make no contribution to my eternal salvation. It is only through the shed blood of Christ that I can be forgiven and experience his righteousness applied to my life. If you're here this morning, you've never experienced that. Everything else I'm saying to you is for later in your life. Come to know him. Come to trust him. Know him as we sung about him this morning as your Lord and Savior. And if you know him, God by design has called you into the context of community. And I believe he means more than just what happens here on Sunday morning. So as your pastor, as your shepherd, I'm just, I'm poking away at you, okay? Uh, I don't want you to get involved in relationships because you feel guilty because you're not in them. My desire is that you would, that you would desire them and want them for the glory of God so that you might experience growth together in the body of Christ. Let's pray together.